Good morning. It's good to be together this morning and the opportunity that we have to gather together and worship. Uh, we're glad to have each of you here, as was said, and especially all of you that are visiting. We have a good number of visitors and are happy to have you here, and I hope you're edified and benefited by the study this morning. Appreciate David's prayer on my behalf, and it's certainly our desires to be edifying in that, that you'll be built up in the faith this morning. We've been studying from the book of First Thessalonians and Paul's letter to that congregation there, and I want to do a quick review of that. I, I like to do a quick review, A, because a lot of you haven't been here for some of those studies, but B, it, I think it just really feel like it just helps reinforce the things that we're talking about, and certainly it's a it's a way that I learn when I see things over and over again and have something reinforced. And so I hopefully by the end of this series, if, you're, if it's starting to feel repetitive, then maybe that's a good sign and it's kind of sunk in a little bit. And, and, and the things that we've desired to teach have been things that everyone has been able to learn. If you remember back to our study, and the studies that we've done have mirrored the chapters pretty well here in First Thessalonians. This week's going to be kind of start to be the exception to that where the message is a little more broken up. But chapter 1 is a chapter where he's really commending that congregation on their behavior. It's a newly formed congregation that he established in his, uh, mission, on his second missionary journey. And he's, as he's traveling through what's now modern-day Greece, he comes to Thessalonica and establishes a church there. And this church kind of gets it from the start. And we've talked about how they're kind of a model congregation. And he says, your faith has gone out everywhere, not only you know, where we see you there, but through all of Macedonia. And it, the word had started to spread, and this congregation really kind of got it. They were doing things right. And so we talked about looking at them as a congregation that we can imitate, and how they looked at the lives of Paul and the other apostles and the, the men that were working with Paul and how they became imitators of Paul in what he did and the way he taught and the way that he lived his life. And because of that, they were setting an example as a congregation for other congregations to imitate. And how that's such a good thing for us as Christians that we can look to other Christians to find someone to imitate. And how as we grow and mature as Christians, we can become the kind of Christian that someone else can imitate. Study number two, we talked about uh, how the, the, the imitation uh, set in. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. About influence, excuse me, about what it means to be, be a spiritual influencer and how Paul talked about how the way that he lived his life and the way that he demonstrated that to the Thessalonians became something that they, they could imitate. And because of that, he had great influence over them. He talked about all the different ways that he did that, primarily being his conduct and his character and how he got in there and he worked with them. He didn't want, to be, he didn't want them to be able to accuse him of any wrongdoing or anything that, that had any appearance of evil. And how important it is for us to have a desire to be spiritual influencers to those that we interact with, to our families and our friends, those that we meet in the world. And how much of an impact we can have on the church when we're willing to exert that spiritual influence. And we do that by the way that we conduct our lives. Holiness, strive to do what God's asked us to do. We talked about the link between faith and works and all those types of things. Last time in part number three, I argued that we should also have a mindset of continuous improvement. And as he told them there, he, all of the things that they should be doing and his desire was that they would establish their hearts and look forward to the coming of Christ. That everything that they were doing and everything that they were about was to get their lives in order, to get their lives in shape and in a way that looked forward to the coming of Christ and that they would be blameless in that, and that they would have a holiness about them. And this idea of continuous improvement, we talked about how 
you know, at some point in time that you, that you kind of have this, this reckoning where you understand. I remember, I remember looking up to people and thinking, man, these, these people are there. They're where God wants them to be. And then as you get older, you realize that doesn't exist. There is no there. It, that's, the Christian life is a continual cycle of improvement and that we just strive and strive and we maybe take one step back, but then we try to take two steps forward and that we should always be looking to always grow our faith. And how important this con- idea of continuous improvement is to the Christians. And really, as we talk today, that idea is going to carry forward a little bit. I want to talk a little bit today about pleasing God. And as he goes into chapter 4 here, he transitions his thought process a little bit and start to think about what it means to please God. You know, everybody is trying to please someone. And you think about, there's kind of two big buckets of this in, in life that you see. You've you got people that are really efforting to please themselves, and all the things that they're trying to do in life are about pleasing themselves, satisfying their own desires and their own wants and the things that they see and need out of life. And you see other types of people that we call people pleasers. And I would say that Tara and I, probably both of us fit into one of these categories. I've always kind of had that mindset, taking care of self. What do we need to do? You know, I need to take care of my family. I need to worry about my own retirement. I need to worry about my job. And I'm always self-focused on that. She's the exact opposite of that. She wants to make parents happy. She wants to make our grandparents happy. She wants to make friends happy. She wants to make the kids happy. She wants to make me happy. She wants everybody to be happy. And I would argue that both have good things and both had bad things about them. And I would argue that the third category and the category that we should all strive to be in is God pleasers. And if we'll strive to be God pleasers, then the other things work, work themselves out then you'll spend the appropriate amount of time on the other things, the appropriate amount of effort on the other things so that it doesn't become all, all life-occupying, that we don't spend our whole lives focusing on self or focusing on making everybody else happy. And pleasing God is exactly what he starts to talk about here in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, and I hope you're benefited by the study of the morning. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask you, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing that you do so more and more. It's really interesting to me, he, this phrase more and more that he uses here. Again, that's the continuous improvement on this. He's commending them for their efforts. He's commending them for their actions and their behaviors. But he said, keep it up. Don't stop there. It's more and more. It's a continual cycle. And so he transitions here. It says finally here, he's sort of Wrapping up the letter, but that's not really a word that's used as a conclusion because we got a couple more chapters here and a, certainly a whole lot of meat in terms of content that we've still got to cover here as he finishes up this letter. So we, it's more of a transition word. He's kind of been spending his time here um, talking to them about kind of how you ought to be as a Christian, and he kind of transitioned into here on these are some specific things you can do to be that way. These are the ways that you can act and the ways that you can behave so that you are the way that I've been telling you you should be. And he challenges them here that they should please God, that they should walk how, they, how they've been taught and to please God in that. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. And we're going to look at obviously what he tells them that's made up of here, but also just a general mindset of pleasing God. And I think sometimes we overlook that in our, you know, this day-to-day life. We talk about uh, you know, all the things that we try to do. But if we will have a general mindset of wanting to please God, and that's kind of that whole what would Jesus do kind of thing, right? It's 
What, what, what can we do in our day-to-day lives? Am I making God happy with what I'm trying to do? Am I making God happy with the decisions I make? Am I making God happy with where I'm spending my time and my effort and the relationships that I'm building? Am I trying to please God in those things? And it's, a, and it's the continuous improvement. And he encourages them to never stop in that, that it should be the focus. And, you know, they get something down. He said you're doing it already, but don't stop there. If you get something down and you're doing a good job of it, move on to something else or do, do the first thing better and just keep going and keep, keep trying to tackle these things. The Christian life's never finished on this side of eternity. So he goes on in verse number two and says, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And I stopped here intentionally. It's a very simple statement. I don't think he necessarily means anything profound here. But I want to call out the fact that he directly associates pleasing God with following instructions. And we've talked a lot about the idea of works and stuff. And somewhere along the way in Christianity, works has got this stigma attached to it that it's a bad thing. And I just can't figure it out. And the more you dig into all of these letters that we've been studying, the more you see the value and the importance of it. And he clearly tells them, Follow instructions. We gave you instructions. I want you to live a life where you walk and please God and you follow instructions, and that's the way you get there. If you follow his instructions, that's the way you get to a life that's pleasing to him. And it seems sort of like, you know, I think about, I remember back in school, you know, teachers would hammer on you to put your name on a test or something. It feels like that's what this is, that this is the put your name on the test kind of commandment. It's like, how many times do I have to tell you to put your name on the test? How many times do I have to tell you, do what, I, do what we told you to do, follow instructions? And it seems so basic, but it gets hammered on. And certainly, in our society, it's something that we should hammer on, the value of following instructions, obeying God. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And I don't know how we've lost that along the way, but if we desire to please God, we have to care about following his commands. Verse number three, he then goes on to give us the why. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So what's the why? The why is your sanctification. That word sanctification, it means set apart. It means you become made different. You become made holy. And that's his desire. His desire is for the life of a Christian to be one that's set apart, that something is different in that. It's his will that will be different in our lives. And if we want to please God, we have to know that we've got to be different. There has to be something different about us. And the example that he chooses to use for that is sexual immorality. Now, you read a lot of commentary on this. A lot of it is in and around the culture of the day, the Roman culture, which was certainly... And I'm not near the historian that some of the guys here are, but if you do any reading on that Roman culture and even the scriptures in and around these congregations in that area, this was a problem. And it was often associated with the various idol-worshiping cultures that they came across and that they ran into. He talked about the Thessalonians here in chapter 1, how he was thankful that they made the decision to leave the idol worship that they had practiced to serve the living God. And so it's a fairly safe assumption that this was part of their culture that was pervasive. And he doesn't necessarily accuse them of having a problem, but I think what he understands is the 
the temptation, the problem that this can cause. And as we're going to look at this morning, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time in this area, but it was, a, it was something that was common across all of these churches that these letters were written to. It was common in that society. And I would argue that, you know, as something, you know, we, you, you hear all the time, all the conversation about how things in the Bible are old and archaic. This is just a pro, as much of a problem today as it was 2,000 years ago. And it's just as applicable today as it was 2,000 years ago. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we should recognize that this is a challenge. And it's certainly a challenge as we look at society. All you have to do is turn on the TV or open your mobile phone and pull up Facebook or Instagram or whatever. This stuff is everywhere. And if we're honest about that, I think we'll, it'll help us to put a better guard up against this stuff. And that's what we want hopefully demonstrate this morning and how closely tied this conversation is with pleasing God. He talks about sanctification. He says a lot in these, two, in these few verses. There's a lot of things he says here that are really important. The sanctification, so this idea of being set apart, being different. He talks about self-control a lot. And if you think about sexual immorality as it's described in the Scriptures, self-control is at the root of that. You think about what it means to think about all of these desires it's all about self. It's all about satisfying what feels good to me or the lust of my eyes, the lust of my flesh. And that's what he's challenging against here, that the Christian life is a life that's not always thinking about me. It's not always about fulfilling those desires in my life. It's about what God wants from me. And that's what he's challenging this congregation with. If we want to please God, we gotta, we've got to be more, more worried about that than pleasing ourselves. There's a commentator as I was doing studies on this that, that made a comment about this, these couple of verses, and I like the way he worded it, so I'm just going to read that instead of trying to paraphrase that. He said, by insisting that the Gentile converts who make up the church conduct themselves in holiness and honor, Paul is drawing an invisible boundary around the community of faith. Those who are part of the church are not to be indistinguishable in their conduct from those outside the church. There should be a discernible difference. So he's saying when outsiders look at the church, when outsiders look at a congregation, there should be a visible difference. You hear people say all the time, right? Whatever, being a Christian is great. You know, nothing has to change. It's, you know, I've, I've accepted Christ, and then I'm going about my life, and nothing's different. That's not how it works. That's not how he wants it to work, and it's certainly not how it should work. It should be different. There should be visible holiness and honor, and not like the Gentiles. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles that he talks about. Whatever desire the Gentiles had, they just fulfilled those desires. They just went after it, full bore, and never said no to themselves, did whatever they want to do. And that's not God's way. His way is that you have that under control. And he gave those commands certainly to a first century Roman culture that was marked by this sexual immorality and chastity and purity and all those things are are non-existent probably in that culture, or, or pretty rare anyway, and it just makes you think of our society. You think about the culture that we live in and how pervasive it is, that it's, you know, you're in a minority if you don't believe that way. And it's something that we have to guard against. There was a Roman writer named Demosthenes, and in one of his writings, he wrote a, a general view of the Roman Empire view of of sexual relations, and he said, we keep prostitutes for pleasure, we keep mistresses for the day-to-day -day needs of the body, and we keep wives for the faithful guardianship of our homes. 
Does that mirror God's plan? It's not even close to God's plan. And yet that's the way culture viewed it, and, and it's a challenge for us in this culture. Our culture says, go after what you want. Go do the things that you desire. Do what makes you happy. Don't worry about pleasing God. Fulfill your own passions and your own desires, and it urges us, and it's not the way that Christians are behaved. We're not to act on every single temptation that comes across. We're to, we're to display control, self-control, temperance, as the Scripture calls it, that we have control over our body and our minds, and we're able to bring that into subjection. And I want to spend some time here, as I believe that this is a key area that can harm the church, it can harm our families, and I believe that Satan knows that this is a tool at his disposal that he can use to try to get Christians outside of their marriage relationships and that he can try to destroy the way that the sexual relationship should be inside the marriage. And I think that he knows that it's front and center a weapon in his arsenal that he can go to battle with. And so I want to look at some of the scriptures that, these, that Paul specifically wrote to these various churches. Remember in Romans chapter 6 when he's talking about uh, the people that had chosen to become Christians and what that meant to them, what, the, what it meant to look at their old life and how they viewed their old life and how that was a life that was dead to sin and how the, the, in choosing to be baptized and become a Christian, their life became a different, a different life. And he says down in verse number 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to what? Sanctification. That you're different, that you're set apart now, that things look different for you. And how does that happen? Because you present yourselves as slaves to righteousness. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a slave to righteousness? I would argue that it means doing what he tells us to do, following his commandments, do, do what he asks us to do. And if we practice that and become slaves to righteousness, that's what sets us apart. That's how things become different. And that whole chapter, he's talking to them about that. As we often talk about, he's not trying to teach baptism. They all got baptized. But what did that mean? It mean they chose to bury that old self, that they laid their old self down, that they were raised to walk in a new life and present themselves as a slave to righteousness. So that was his message to the Romans. And to me, you know, we talked about, several of the guys have said as we've been doing some of these deeper studies on these books and these letters, we kind of get into territories where we're hitting on the same things. And the truth is, he taught the same things to the different congregations. It was a consistent message. And to me, it's faith building that there's consistency in that message to know that, you know, people over the years aren't that different, really, that human nature has really been the same from the beginning of time, that struggles are similar for people all throughout time, that, that men and women deal with the same things, and that the gospel message was the same to all of these churches. He wanted them all to walk this way. He wanted them all to please God. He wanted them all to follow his commandments, and that's what he wrote. Listen what he, how he said it to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. 
So glorify God in your body. It's a really interesting conversation. I, I remember over the years hearing different conversations about, well, are there, are there categories of sin? You know, as humans, I think we make categories of sin. If I look at certain sins that I see people commit, naturally, I think, well, this sin is worse than this sin. And you kind of grade them, right? We have a scale where that one's not quite as bad. Or, or he told a really big lie, but this person told a really small lie. And we want to categorize all of these sins. The truth is sin is sin, right? If I either violate God's law or I don't violate God's law, and sin is sin. But he definitely calls some kind of a distinction here about this. And he says all these other sins are sins that you commit outside the body, but sexual immorality is a sin you commit against your own body. And so there's definitely a difference here in the way he views it and the way he describes it. And I think that stuff in Romans about the new body and how things are different, you become dead to sin, that's part of all this, right? You become something that people look at as an example. Back to our conversation about being an example for people, being something someone can imitate. This is a sin you commit against your own body. Remember, the old man is dead to the world. The new man is bought with a price, as he says here. And so we should exercise control over that and glorify God with our body. So he's hit the Romans, the Thessalonians, the Corinthians. Listen to what he says here now to the Ephesians. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, greedy, to, excuse me, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and in holiness. See how directly related it is with a selfish mindset? As he describes them here and how they used to be and how the Gentiles are, how those that are without are, it's all about you. It's they did this. This is them. Themselves. Their mindset. It's all about them. When it should be about what? The new self, which is what? created after the likeness of God, righteousness, holiness, self-control, practicing these things. The King James in verse number 19, where it's translated sensuality, here the King James uses the word lasciviousness. I always remember thinking that was such a weird word, and I kind of like it actually because, A, it calls your attention to something different, but B, it just sounds, it sounds bad. Lasciviousness, it just sounds bad, and It is. The word, that's exactly what he means. It's kind of, a, it's kind of a, uh, an unbridled lust. It's sort of whatever comes up, go fulfill it. Just fulfill those desires. Don't ask any questions. Don't stop to think about it. Self-control doesn't even come up. It doesn't have time to come up because you just go take care of it. And that's what he's talking about here. That's the way the Gentiles acted. But the body's dead now, and there's a new self, and we need to renew our minds in that way. You can dig into each of these letters to these New Testament churches, and this is addressed somewhere in all of them, and we don't have time to spend addressing all those. But these few examples, I think, really hit home the importance of this. And 
It's certainly an area that was obviously a problem in this Roman culture, but I believe it's an area today that we have to guard against just as, just as strongly as it's taught about here. And I suppose if he allows this world to go on another 2,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 years, it's something to the end of time that man will, will need to deal with in an appropriate way in order to please God. The good part of this is there's, as God does in all situations, designs something for us to deal with this. We know he won't allow us to be tempted without a way to escape. And the Bible teaches that. In Hebrews chapter 13 and 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And then in his same writings to the Corinthians, a little further on when we read earlier, now concerning the matters about which he wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. See, like everything else, God's design is perfect in this. And he knows the heart of man and he knows the things that we struggle with and things that we desire. And he designed a relationship that deals with this very thing. And it's a key component of the marriage relationship. And that it's not easy for us to talk about this topic. I know and understand that. And it's not something that we're always comfortable talking about with. But if we're being honest, it's a key component of a marriage relationship. And as I look at the Scriptures, I actually have a hard time finding another reason Now, I'm not saying there aren't other benefits, and I want to be clear on that, that there's nothing more to a marriage relationship. But in terms of reasons given for marriage, this is the one I can find in the Scriptures. And so we're kidding ourselves if we think that this is not something that's an important and valuable part of the marriage relationship. It's a key differentiator among the marriage relationship. Even amongst Christian relationships, we can have very close relationships to other people in the church to men, to women, it doesn't matter. We can have very close relationships and almost all other aspects of relationships you can get in those relationships. This is a differentiating part of the marriage relationship and God designed it that way and he designed it for it to be something that is special in that relationship and something that is meaningful and something that is designed to bring people closer together. And he said the two become one flesh. And that physical relationship is an important part of that. And it's part of God's design to combat against the temptations that he's talking about here. And he says that pretty much plain as day here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Would it be better to not fulfill those desires at all? At some level, it would be better because there's some sense of self in that, right? But if it happened, it needs to happen in the marriage relationship. And it's a bond that brings people closer together. And even at that, it's not about self, it's about the other person because the wife's body is not hers and the husband is not his. You're still desiring to fulfill somebody else's needs over your own needs. And it's certainly something that he has given to us to combat that. And as he closes this little section of instruction on This immorality, he wraps up with kind of a reminder about the why. Verse number six, back in our chapter, we bounced out of Thessalonians there for a minute. Now back in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, he says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger in all things, 
as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. Therefore, whosoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Here's the big why. It's holiness. It's about becoming closer to God. It's about living a life that is sanctified, that is set apart, that is different, and not focusing on self, and not focusing on my desires and what he wants. It's a call to holiness. And pleasing God means that we're choosing to live in a way that's different. If you make that decision, it's a conscious decision and a conscious choice that something's going to be different about my life, and it's not going to be about me anymore. And we stumble, and there's times we fall back into that, and all we care about is ourselves and selfish decisions and things that we want to get done. And we need to correct those and move on and realize it's not about us and realize it's about pleasing God. Let's don't kid, on our, kid ourselves about this. It's difficult to deal with, and we need to guard ourselves and our families and our congregation against these kinds of temptations. And we need to teach what it means to have a godly marriage. We need to teach the sanctity of marriage. We need to teach that even though the world says marriage is something that you can do and throw away whenever you want, that it's not that to God, that there's a value in it and there's a reason for it. And it's a relationship that God designed to be different and special. And it's Satan's desire to tear that apart. And Satan wants us to believe like our culture believes, that we shall fulfill any desire that we have and, and go after those things and satisfy those desires. And as we think about not pleasing ourselves in this, the natural tendency is thinking about others first, thinking about God first. And he, that's exactly what Paul transitions to here, and that's where he goes next in this little section of writing. And he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So, you know, he transitions from this idea or this conversation about sexual immorality and the need to really guard against it to brotherly love. And so he's saying, put away yourself, the things that you desire and the things that you want. Don't focus on those. Focus on pleasing God. And in doing that, think about others, loving others. And they're tied together closely, and he commends them for that. He said, you're doing a good job of that. You're already doing it. I have no need to write to you on this. I have no need to write to you, but I'm going to do it anyways, apparently. <laughs> but that's how he dealt with them in this letter. As much as, as encouraging as he was about the way they behaved, he reinforced that and reinforced the need for it. And, and, and if he commended them on something, he said, do it more and more. Keep after it. For that is what you're doing all throughout Macedonia. And the strength of a congregation and the strength of the brotherhood is measured by love. It's measured by brotherly love. And if we want to see a strong congregation, look for love. And if you see love, you're going to see a strong congregation. And that's what he told them here. Keep that up. Remember how John marked the, the view of a true Christian? Jesus' words here, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I've loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Brotherly love is a fundamental characteristic to Christianity. It's fundamental to a congregation, and it's certainly fundamental to the success of a congregation. And he reminds them of this and urges them to build upon it and keep doing a good job on that. 
And he even says that. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. There's that phrase again, more and more. Continuous improvement. Whatever we're talking about here. The sexual immorality stuff, guarding against that, get better at it. Do some more and more. Self-control, get better at it. Exercise better self-control. Keep doing it more and more. Sanctification, more and more. Get closer to God. Follow his will. Follow more instructions tomorrow than you did today. Fail less tomorrow than you did today and get better. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed. You remember the, the conversation about influence and how he said that? He said, hey, when I was with you, I worked with my own hands. I made my own way. I didn't want to take anything of you because I didn't want anybody to say I'm greedy. I didn't want anybody to say I'm doing it for the money. I don't want to be the television preacher that's up there saying, send me your millions and God's going to take care of you. Live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Work with your hands as we instructed you. Why? So that you may walk properly. So that you can walk like you're supposed to walk. You do all of these things before outsiders and be independent on, excuse me, be dependent on no one. One of the commentators I was reading in this section was kind of making the argument that this was a, a direct reference to the Thessalonians' challenge with the second coming. And we're quickly about to move into that as the latter part of this chapter 4 is where he starts to address that. Um, and so he was arguing that this set of instructions might be directly related to that. I don't think you can prove that definitively in the Scriptures. Um, but maybe they thought the coming of the Lord was imminent, and so uh, maybe they were slacking off. Maybe they weren't working. I don't know. You, you kind of have to read a bit into that to get to that line of thinking. Um, it doesn't not make sense either. It's, it makes a little bit of sense that there could be some of that in that congregation. But regardless, he gave them some pretty clear instructions on, on how they should live. You know, don't, don't be worrying about the affairs of others. Don't be a busybody. Don't be lazy, go do your work, all these various things. But the key there is the walking properly part. And the point of that is, one, so that you are a good influence to those that are outside, so that, you, that you're prop, you walk properly before outsiders, so that when they look at your life, they can say, there's something different. And you see how all this stuff ties together? They, they can say something's different about this person. The way that they behave, there's something different. I perceive something different in their lives. Why is that? It's because they chose to please God and not themselves. And as they strive to do God's commands, further and further along, they become sanctified in that. They become set apart. There's something different about them, and they're God's. And the second thing is it keeps us from being dependent on others. There's no dependency there on those that are outside. And that frees us up to do a lot of things and be a good example and do a lot of things, whether you're talking finances, whether you're talking attitude, whether you're talking, you know, slave-type situation, all the stuff that we read about and talk about. That's what it means to live a life pleasing to God. And as we close this morning, I want to read a passage in Colossians chapter 1 that I think mirrors this uh, chapter in Thessalonians really well and I think summarizes what we're trying to say, say here this morning. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 9, he says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, 
bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What's it all about? Why would you choose all this? Why would you choose to live this way that we're talking about this morning versus worrying about yourself? You know, Trevor talks about the the Darwinism stuff in his studies, the survival of the fittest, right? What does the, the lion in Africa do? The lion in Africa worries about satisfying himself, whether that means killing to do so, whether that means fighting to do so. He's worrying about his hunger. He's worrying about reproduction. He's worrying about the things that he cares about. And the Scriptures teach the exact opposite behavior of that for the Christian, that we should not focus on that. And what's the why behind it? The why is because he had transferred us into his kingdom, and we have the forgiveness of sins. We have the promise of forgiveness. We have the promise of what we look forward to. And so I think about Moses, who chose God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He had a long-term perspective, an eternal perspective on this stuff. Let's focus our hearts and our minds on pleasing God this morning. And I hope that you'll see the importance of that and the, the benefit in your life of doing that and all the things that we've talked about this morning. Let's guard against the pervasiveness of all of this sexual immorality in our culture. Let's guard against that and not get our hearts hardened toward it and have a callous view of that. Let's guard against it and guard our churches and our families against that. And let's think about brotherly love and how important that is in in our sighting. Let's think about what it means to please God. If you're here this morning and you've never obeyed the gospel, there's not a single action you can do in your life that would please God more than becoming part of his family, than the decision to become a Christian and say, I'm going to walk in that way, and I care about pleasing you going forward. And I want my actions to prove that. And I'm going to do everything in my power to please you going forward. And we want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never obeyed the gospel, do that this morning. I hope you can see the importance in pleasing God. Don't have an attitude of of carelessness in that. Don't have a selfish attitude. Have an attitude where you have a desire to please God. And the way you live your life demonstrates that. And obey him this morning and obey the gospel and be buried with him in baptism. Romans 6, like we read, so that you could choose to walk a new life, to be freed from your sin, free the old man from that sinful life so that you can raise to walk, rise to walk in newness of life. And if you need the church for any other reason this morning, maybe you struggle with any of these things we talked about, maybe you struggle with pleasing God in general, the church is happy to help you with that. We want to lean on each other in that. We want to help each other do a better job of pleasing God, and we're happy to pray for you this morning if you desire that. If there's any need that we can help you with, have a seat on the front as we sing this invitation song.